Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. So Superman's Not Coming has been a bit of a tagline for me for a while now, actually a long while. I need people to understand that no one is swooping down in a cape to solve our problems. Lately, I have been so motivated by all the young people I see seizing the moment to become their own heroes. Today, and I'm really excited, I have with me Alexandria Sonora who at the age of 15 has become a leader at the age of 15, a leader in the fight against climate change. Alexandria will be featured in an episode of PBS's Earth Focus series, but today I'm really excited. She's here with me. Hi, Alexandria, and welcome. Hi, thank you for having me here today. I well, as you know, I've been kind of giggly. I'm actually so excited to have you on, and I admire you. And at such a young age, fifteen, finding your voice and using your voice, and I think that's such an important message for all youth. So, welcome. I have a lot of questions, but I do want to ask you something. You live in New York now, but you're from California originally, yes? Yes, I was um, born and raised in Northern California. Where in Northern California? Davis. Davis. Okay, so I know where you are. You were right outside of Sacramento. Exactly, right across the causeway. That's right. I used to live in Lodi, California, just in case you know where that is. Oh, yeah. That's oh, yeah. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> It's south of uh, Sacramento. It's down, you know, kind of in that farm belt. So I lived in Lodi for years. But I want to ask you, um, and I've been involved in the Northern California fires. You were visiting family during a time what has now become known as the Camp Fire, the deadliest wildfire in California history that ravaged the whole northern part of our state. Can you share with us um, what you experienced during that time? Yes, uh, definitely. So the Paradise Fire is the main reason I got involved. And so I was visiting family um, around Thanksgiving. I decided to come home for that. And so when Paradise happened, um, Davis, we are very close to um, where the fire was. So we ended up getting a lot of the smoke from it. Um, The air quality was really bad. At one point, it was um, 350 AQI, which is in the hazardous area. Um, And at one point, it was even the worst air quality in the world. Um, And so my family, what we had to do is, um, I have asthma, so it was making me extremely sick. Mm. My family, we ended up rolling wet towels, putting them under windows and doors to keep the smoke from coming in. Um, I remember one time, uh, my dad was driving down in downtown Davis, and um, we ended up seeing people who didn't realize how the smoke affects them. And there are people who are literally dropping um, and ambulance had to come and pick them up. All of the hospital beds were filled up from people who just weren't aware of what happens with smoke inhalation. And so 
I actually didn't remember how scary it was um, when I was there for the fire until I found a journal that I had during that time. Um, and so I got to read everything that I was feeling in that moment. And it kind of brought back all of those emotions. And um, it was definitely a very scary situation, of course. Um, and then uh, they, my family ended up sending me back to New York City early from that trip just because of how unsafe it was. Um, recently, last year, um, before the pandemic started, I was able to go to Paradise, California and see the aftermath of what happened. And I got to meet some people who um, lived there when it happened, and they gave me a tour, this in-depth, where um, I got to meet a bunch of people um, who lived there. And so one thing that really struck me was how um, a lot of the people in Paradise, um, after the fire got all this attention, um, the media tends to move on. And so the media moved on from Paradise, but they are still experiencing a lot of the aftermath. Um, people lost their homes, but some of them are still living in their lots. Um, and so the town of Paradise is still experiencing a lot of the trauma that happened from that fire. And so I think that that's a, an example of how climate change is going to affect places. Um, and it's going to really um, move, and Paradise is not the last place that's going to get affected by that. Um, Paradise is still rebuilding. And so um, it's, that is one of the reasons why I continue being an activist is just because seeing what happened to Paradise and how it's not going to be the last place that is struck by climate change. You know, um, so I, I've been up there, I've been involved in, in the whole, you know, litigation side with PG&E. They're my old nemesis back in the day in Hinkley. And you, you really bring something um, to light for me that I've experienced that oftentimes people don't. Um, and that's that you were, you were there and on the ground and there's nothing like, um, and it doesn't have to be a disastrous situation like campfire. When I was out in Hinkley, um, just being in the environment and making observations, I, I really, that's what got me started in my work. And I find it really interesting that that experience catapulted you and motivated you and pushed you further into um, who you've become today. It was pretty devastating up there and it's pretty hard not to be impacted. But another comment you made that's very interesting, the same observation I had in the BP oil spill. We need the media um, and they can do really good to, you know, get the information out there about what's going on. But you're right. Um, they come, they report, and then they go because the media, media is a fast news cycle. And we don't always come back in and see the long-term effects of what's happened to that community. So I think it's terrific that you've checked back in and will obviously continue to follow through on what's going on with the people of Paradise. Yeah, definitely. And one thing that even as a youth activist that we're always doing is we're saying how the media does have a responsibility to bring light to the climate crisis because the media is very important it's how people get educated on the issues that are happening. And so when media reports on a climate disaster, it shows other people what's happening around the world. And so as a young person, um, we are always pushing the media to do better. 
<laughs> I know it's, it's a continual, you know, labor of love. I've always said that um, way back in the day with Hinckley, all of this is a labor of love and going to Superman is not coming. Um, and thinking that someone will be there, but it does take an individual such as you. And then the collective that can become such a powerful movement for change, especially in climate change. I do want people to understand how you, how you became an activist. Can you share that with us? Yes, definitely. Um, after experiencing paradise and seeing what happened there mm -hmm. um, and coming back to New York City, I started to research about California's wildfires because California, our wildfire season is all year round now. It doesn't end or start. Um, it's just when is the next one going to happen? And so I started researching about that and I saw the connection. Um, and that was, of course, something that made me want to do something about that and so I didn't know how until I saw the movement that was happening with Greta and I saw Greta speak um, and that was a kind of a catapult moment when I decided that I wanted to take some action and so I turned all of the climate anxiety and eco grief that I was feeling and I turned it into a school strike and so I started stri striking every Friday in front of the United Nations headquarters um, I started on December in December 2018, and I striked all the way up till um, the pandemic. And so after I started striking, however, I ended up um, getting connected with all these other young activists around the world, and um, I got to join this movement, and that's really what ended made me end up getting involved in activism. You know... I kind of want to ask you something here about, um, like, your parents. So you have what I learned that my mom taught me, what we call stick intuitiveness. And we're not necessarily born with stick intuitiveness, but life requires we have it. And its definition is noun, propensity to follow through in a determined manner dogged persistence born of obligation and stubbornness. See, that's what I get. It's that dogged persistence, that determination, that almost stubbornness. Um, growing up, were your mom and dad instrumental? And, in, you know, are you just naturally dogged and persistent? Or was there things through your life and you're still so young um, that have, helped you develop that type of persistence and tenacity and determination? Yeah. Um, I've always been a very stubborn person in my household. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm in a big family, so I'm actually the youngest of four older siblings um, who are all adults in college. Um, so I'm the youngest, and I've always kind of had that um, – kind of telling my siblings what to do and kind of running the household. So I've always been a stubborn child. I uh, like that. That's good. That's a good thing. Definitely. Um, and my parents, I have learned a lot from them. Um, and even in activism, uh, it's so hard to do it without support. And my parents have been very supportive of everything I've done. So I'm very lucky to have them. Um, and I get to see persistence from my parents um, all the time um, with my mom in school, actually. Uh, my mom 
just finished her master's um, at Columbia University, and now she's on to her PhD at UC Davis. And so I've gotten to see her being persistent um, in school and with her education. And I think that that um, is definitely something that I look up to is just um, how consistent she is and um, persistent, stubborn, um, all the above. And so um, I'm very lucky for the family that I've gotten to see and learn from. Yeah, they're very special, aren't they? And I really understand that. And so I think that's fabulous. Well, I, I love that determination and dogged persistence and stick-to-itiveness. And that stuck with me my whole life. Um, and I, I want to ask you, you know, um, a lot of people have the persistence, but at the first time they don't succeed, they kind of want to, you know, give up. I don't see you as that kind of person. What, what advice do you have for, for the youth? You know, when you, you really put a lot into these things and you have a setback. Yeah, I think that in organizing, um, it's important to ground yourself. And what I mean by that is find a place that you feel connected with other activists. Um, for me, I got connected in this global climate strike movement when I first started. And um, I was with this group of people organizing those global climate strikes um, nationally and internationally. I had this community there um, and it was my grounding factor. And so a lot of the times um, when I meet young people, I tell them to first find your climate story, um, how you're being affected by the climate crisis, even just looking in your own community from the little things or the big things. Um, how are you being affected? Because that is a main passion behind the work you do. And then after that, find a group that you resonate with, someplace where your message is um, consistent and you can meet others who are working for the same goals as you. And so grounding yourself in a movement that you are connected with others who are working for the same goal and mission, I think is so important. And no, it really is. And I'm, I'm going to kind of just keep coming back, um, you know, with, with the word courage and, and what it takes to, you know, you're very persistent. And um, I, I think it's wonderful for other youth. I'm an adult. Are you kidding me? I'm 60 and I can learn something from you. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, that kind of leads me to that, wanting to ask you, um, what do you say to people? And what do you think young people should respond um on people who mock young people as they stand up for what they believe in <laughs> um <laughs> the mocking happens online so first i check to see if they're <laughs> even real people <laughs> um, social media usually there's so many bots and trolls i've been astroturfed many times on twitter um, so I first checked to see if they're even real. <laughs> um, most of the time, though, um, I've, I've been able to meet people who are very understanding and supportive. Um, on the rare occasions um, that a person mocks or questions me, um, I've found this tactic to relate to people and um, talk to climate deniers. Uh, I, have a, I actually have a relative who is a climate denier, um, and so uh, this is... A That's an interesting conversation I bet you all have. 
Definitely. Um, and of course, it was at a Thanksgiving dinner. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. And so the thing that I found that really works is to um, have a conversation with those who don't exactly believe in the science. So um, when you come in there uh, very strong, forcibly, um, sometimes it gets people on the offensive side mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and they don't really want to have a conversation and listen to you. And so um, when it comes to any relative that said that, I just had a conversation with them and I told them why this is so important to me and my generation and why um, we're fighting for a future and just had a conversation. And I saw her mindset start to change. Um, and I've noticed this with a lot of um, other young people and their families when it came to them getting involved in the climate strike movement. Um, and so I have had to learn a lot about how to have conversations with those who don't believe in the science. Well, you must really operate at an instinctual level. Um, and I, I'm picking up on that because I'm very instinctual and I, I learned later in life what you're learning young. Nobody likes to have like, you know, something pushed down their throat and how you handle that um, so that who you're talking to can actually hear you um, must be coming, uh, my guess is from a um, instinctual, guttural a very common sense place and approach. Are these things for you just in you instinctually? Um, I think that when it comes to the planet, all of us have this um, connection with the earth and an instinct to protect it um, and take care of it. Um, I was always very connected to nature um, as a kid. Um, and I think that everybody, when it comes to our planet, um, we have to understand our emotions and um, what we are afraid of with losing um, and what we have to fight for. Uh, one thing that I always talk about is how um, my generation, we um, were seeing the collapse of our ecosystems and biodiversity. And one thing that makes me so upset is um, the next generation may not be able to see the vast ecosystem that we have today. Um, so I always, when I fight for a future, um, I also fight for every species on this planet. Um, and it's instinctual to protect those around me. Um, and so I definitely think that when it comes to our planet Earth, um, we must protect it and have this real connection with it because it's what takes care of us and it's what sustains us living. It does. And I oftentimes worry that we've even, we have forgotten that or that we just think someone is automatically going to come save and protect us. You know, we didn't get here overnight. This has been decades of an erosion and deterioration. And it's, you know, I did something in a, a keynote address and I asked everyone to close their eyes <laughs> And just vision where they go um, to relax, to reconnect, to have a moment where they could just even hear themselves think. And I said, before you open your eyes, I'm going to ask a question. I'd like you to raise your hand and I'll tell you when to open your eyes. How many of you are in the environment, in the great outdoors, in that place where you can find yourself again? 
And I'm telling you thousands of people, every one of them, their hands come up. And I say, open your eyes. And they look around and they're like, oh my gosh. <laughs> it's like, we're so disconnected that we are everything we do and love and where we relax and rejuvenate is coming from this planet. And it's about getting everyone reconnected again. And I just think we forget how important this planet is. It sustains everything we do. Yeah, I agree 100%. Um, I think that it's always very important for us to, especially in this work, to get connected with the earth because sometimes we get so caught up in protecting it that it's always important to re-go um, and ground ourselves again. And so um, during this pandemic, one thing that I focus on is a reflection and um, regrounding with nature around me. It's true. And I think it's happening for, for all of us. You're wise beyond your years. So can you share for listeners uh, and tell us about Earth Uprising? Yes, um, I would love to. Um, after I started getting involved in the climate movement and started striking, one thing that I quickly became aware about was um, just how much there was a lack of climate education. And so even in schools, we're not taught the science about what's happening. The most you'll learn is reduce, reuse, recycle. Um, and that is not enough to save our planet. And so it even feels as if we're being taught up to be the perfect consumers and stay in this world that um, won't be cli in, climate, in a climate-changed world. And so it's important to prepare young people for everything that's going to happen. Um, mitigation and adaptation uh, is very important now. And so one thing that I've seen is how there's so many young people that have just been failed by our curriculums and our school system. And so we want to educate each other now. And so with Earth Uprising, the main mission is to educate young people peer-to-peer -peer, and through that, mobilize them for direct action. Because once young people are educated, then there's this certain passion that they start to feel where they want to go out and fight. And so that is what Earth Uprising is focusing on um, especially this year as we get more young people involved in the climate movement. And, and how, like, what's the response from the young people of with Earth Rising? Are you seeing a good response from globally perspective of youth? Yes, definitely. Um, Earth Uprising, we are international. We have people in over um, 50 countries. And so I think that having an international movement um, is very important. It's something that I've always focused on is the international collaboration. Um, mm -hmm. Because the climate crisis, it doesn't see borders that we have. Um, the climate crisis is international, so we need international action and collaboration. And so um, the response with Earth Uprising has been um, very positive. Uh, I see every country focuses on different initiatives because of course there's um, differences in um, the way that each country does things. Um, for example, in the United States, we're doing education in school clubs, but school clubs don't exist um, in some other countries. And so um, we have ambassadors who are um, making sure that the curriculum and the campaigns are specific to their country because um, 
in every place they may be different and it's important to look around you and see how the campaigns will work um, and so internationally it's been um, amazing so far uh, earth uprising was actually going to be at cop um, before it ended up getting postponed mm -hmm. and so at cop we had this um, we had a very big message going on um, I was at the last COP actually, and I was very disappointed. So I was prepared to come back um, and just be this force of nature with all these other youth um, <laughs> because to make sure that they actually take action. Because um, there is often a lack of this political will at these international conferences. And so young people have to be there consistently putting the pressure on them. And especially when it comes to COP and international conferences, it's important to get people who are being affected by the climate crisis um, there to tell their stories. And that is what we have to start focusing on is um, places that are being affected the most by the climate crisis. And so Earth Uprising is um, focusing on highlighting those places and education um, in those places. Yeah. It, uh, it's uh, the educational component and, and what are we going to teach in schools about the environment, about the climate it is key because I find oftentimes um, if we don't know, we don't always respond. But when we do know and we get that knowledge and that information, um, it's that moment where you can see the light bulb go on and then people get involved. And so that, that's something that I hope we strive for, and it sounds like certainly you are, with the education component, the curriculum component, getting it in schools, um, not only just here in America, but globally, the importance of that. How do you know all this at 15? You're so wise. <laughs> um, I've always been, um, uh, I've always been the person who um, holds myself to very high standards. So, um, I, when I want to get something done, I always go out there and find out the information. And um, I'm always learning from those around me. And I also make sure that I have um, mentors and people who can um, really teach me. And so I think that um, that's the intergenerational component that I find a lot is having mentors who can um, really teach me about what's happening to the planet. So, um, for example, I have some climate scientists who are mentors, um, a, a lot of professors that I've met, um, other organizers who've been this, uh, in, a, in this movement for a long time, um, because, of course, it's so important for the older generation to listen to the young people. Um, but I also think that young people still have a lot to learn from um, the generations who have come before us. There's so much to learn from each other. Absolutely. Like I said, I could talk with you forever. And I, I know we always only have so limited time. I'll, 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 just a couple other things I, I want to run by you. So you were protesting at the UN. How, you know, what did that feel like for you? And how did that happen? So the first day I went to the United Nations, it was the first day I'd ever protested. And I remember getting on the subway. Um, <laughs> I was still very new to New York City. So I don't ever, I don't think I'd ever actually been to that part of Manhattan before. Um, <laughs> and so I ended up walking and going to the UN. There's this uh, strip 
that they're on um, on that street. And so I ended up going and sitting right next to the entrance with my sign. Um, and then a security guard came over to me, actually, and he's like, you can't sit here. Uh, and so I said, um, I was kind of indignant. And so I went over and said, where can I sit? <laughs> and he pointed me over to this bench about 100 feet away that was on this little island, still on the same strip, but enough away that they were okay with it. And so I went and I sat there. Um, and that kind of just became the spot that I sat at every Friday. Uh, I went there um, in wind and rain, snow and sleet. And so it kind of, um, I was even there during the polar vortex that happened. I was in a sub-zero sleeping bag. And so. Um, oh, my. Yeah, it was very. Because you're missing California then, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I was not used to New City weather at all. Uh, and so I had to learn a lot striking every Friday, how to stay safe. Um, I was fine with whatever conditions it was, though, because I knew that in the future, the conditions we'd have to face would be much worse. So um, I stuck it out every Friday there. You know, that's that's so impressive. Um, Again, we'll go back to -to stick-to-itiveness and that determination. And you take your words and you're turning them into action. Did you have more people join you? What were you thinking? Were you scared? Were you excited? Braving all those elements? You must have been very rooted into something inside of yourself. Uh, I was very committed to being there. Uh, Eventually, I did get a lot of visitors. It became um, a very big strike location every Friday. And so it got to a point where I got invited in um, a bunch of times before the pandemic started, I actually got to speak at the United Nations um, inside in the in the General Assembly Hall. So it was I thank the UN for um, really giving support to the youth activists. Um, and so uh, I will always be grateful to have gotten to meet all of those people there. And so it was a great um, experience. And so I'm happy to see to learn from that and get to even go forward with different ways of activism in the future. Well, what will be the next step for you in in all of this activism and climate change in your movement? And what is the next step that you can share for people who want to join the movement and just don't know how to make a difference? I think that the first step for people to make a difference is, like I said before, find their climate story. And once they do that, find a group locally or take some sort of action. There's so much that they can do even during this pandemic, like phone banking, writing their city council members. I think that local um, policy is very important um, because once you city council members can be even more effective than um, states. And so I finding policy in your city council is also very important. Um, I think the climate movement will continue to grow, but it will look different coming out of this. When the pandemic first started, we started to have conversations around reflection and what made our movement. Was it the direct action? Was it um, just having all these different conversations around it? And we're also going to focus even more on intersectionality, making sure that those who are being affected by the climate crisis are the ones who are at the forefront 
forefront, making their voices heard. And so I think that we'll come out of this even stronger than before. I agree with you. You hit on so many points that, you know, I've been working on for 20 years. And one of them is making a difference. And that's, hence, Superman's not coming. But you, the individual, and rising up in your own backyard and getting the collective together, your neighbors, but getting to local city council. We've really forgotten the importance of that. Yes, city council. I have been surprised by them on many occasions, actually. And <laughs> you here- and me both. <laughs> <laughs> in New York City, one of the climate strikes we had, our main demand was a New York City climate emergency. And so after striking and demanding for that consistently, we ended up getting one. And in New York City, especially, we got this um, new policy, uh, the CC. CPA, which was some of the most progressive um, climate policy in the United States. And so seeing how we as young people were um, affecting our city council and our policies uh, shows just how young people can be influential when we continuously demand for it. And so young people can have a seat at the table if we just make it the space for us. Absolutely. And you need the seat at that table. I completely agree with you. Now, is this, can this, I know we talk about youth, but I think there's such an amazing place for us adults um, to come in and um, learn too. So us old people can join with you, right? (laughs) Definitely. I think intergenerational activism is so important in the movement. One thing I always say is how um, adults can be the main fans for this movement and by (laughs) um, uh, fund, amplify, and narrate. Um, For example, a lot of young people, we are doing this out of pocket a lot of the times, um, and it starts to create this economic divide when it comes to activism where those who are able to go and speak places are the ones who are heard most, but those who are really being affected aren't able to go and speak and share their stories sometimes. And as well with Amplify, um, I think that amplification is very important when it comes to social media or just helping us with our campaigns. Um, And then narrate, of course, Um, adults also have their climate story. Their climate (laughs) story is so important too, how they've been affected. And they've gotten to see our planet change over the past couple of years. They have that insight that they can share. And so I think that intergenerational um, cooperation and is so important. I would, I, I love getting to work with those who have organized for a while, just hearing everything that they've gone through. And so Young people, we think outside of the box, and since we haven't been in the system that a lot of adults have been in for a while, um, we think that anything is possible, and that really shows in our organizing and our protesting. And so I think that there are limits that both learn from each other, and what can we do differently now? So there's so much that we can learn from each other, really. It's so true. I learn so much from my kids every day. And I even learned so much from my grandchildren every day. And I, I'm so impressed with you. And I'm so delighted that I got to spend time with you. You are 
just outstanding and a perfect example. Superman's not coming in. You're not waiting for that. And you're rising up. And your voice can lead so many of us to come together and fight for the one thing. At the end of the day, every single one of us needs to sustain our life. That's just climate, our environment, the air, the water. And I think it is absolutely beautiful um, what you're doing, the work that you're doing. Uh, I'm going to be following you. And I'm really thankful for your voice. And I'm so happy that you came to share today. And I learned a lot. And I want others to know about Alexandria's story and how youth and all of us can become the activists. So Alexandria, um, I thank you so much. What an impressive young lady. Thank you so much. And I can assure you that a lot of young people are learning from you too and everything that you've done. Well, we're going to stand together, aren't we? Yes, we are. Well, I thank you. And I do want to, to close and share with everyone to please watch PBS's Earth Focus series episode, Youth Climate Movement Around the World, is available streaming on kcet.org slash earthfocus. Uh, anything that you want to add to that so we can make sure listeners know where to go? Uh, with, the, w- with what is coming out, um, make sure to go to the website for the petition um, which is childrenversclimatecrisis.org, where you can learn about all of the petitioners um, in the complaint. Yes. Alexandria, you are delightful. Keep going. We can all learn from you. What a beautiful, powerful voice. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much. (laughs) 